0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Plants podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Since last week, a lot of you have written in in support of the Dracula Reserve's mission to save biodiversity and putting orchids at their focus. And I thank everyone that stepped up to chip in and help out their mission to prevent both legal and illegal gold mining operations on their properties. This issue is important enough that I wanted to revisit a conversation I had with the founder of Fundacion Ecominga, Lou Jost. He is one of the most interesting people I've ever talked to, and his love for small orchids in genera such as Lepanthes and Tegia will blow your mind. But the impact of Ecominga and its reserves go far beyond plants. It's supporting the entire ecosystem that those plants comprise. So let's revisit episode 235 of the podcast so that you get a better appreciation for everything that's going on through Ecominga, the Dracula Reserve, and all of their other land holdings. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lou Jost. I hope you enjoy. All right, Lou Jost. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about we start with a little bit about who you are and what it is you do?
1: Well, thanks, Matt, for inviting me. I'm a biologist nowadays, but I was trained as a biologist as a physicist and mathematician. But all my life, I've loved plants and birds and nature in general. And uh, lately, that's what I've been concentrating on. Uh, I moved to Ecuador in 1994 to look at birds. And began to uh, see lots of interesting biogeographic patterns among the orchids that live in Ecuador. And those, those caught my attention and drew me into the, the forest in a more serious way. And uh, since then I've been mapping the biogeography of orchids and trying to trying to understand their distributions. And then after, after discovering a fair number of new species, I, I started worrying about the conservation of them. Mm. Uh, if I wasn't going to, Take care of them, who would? So, you know, so, my friends and I formed a foundation, Fundación Ecominga, to try to protect the places that I had found with these hot spots of endemic orchids. And that's what I do now mostly is help manage the reserves. We have 14 reserves now. Wow. Yeah, lots, and lots of work to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds it. And I'm a huge fan of your work, and I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about everything plant, botany, especially orchid related because I think we share a lot of sentiments. But I do have to say right out of the gates that it's really... Encouraging and exciting to know that you came into a lot of this with a physics and mathematical background, because looking over a lot of your work, um, it is extremely math heavy in some cases. And it just blew my mind that you would have so many different skills to bring to the table. So (laughs) already, it's good to know there's at least a mathematical background in there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for noticing that most most people don't look at that.
0: Oh, yeah, no, anything like that, uh, you know, talking about diversity indices and, and yeah, it's, it's rare to bring those sorts of expertises to the table um, and make them into something that you can tangibly write out. It, it's impressive. <laughs> well,
1: it, I, actually, that's one of my most important passions. And uh, as you say, most biologists don't really like math very much. The core of my work is to show that biologists have been making a lot of mistakes evaluating biodiversity using traditional indices which aren't even logically consistent with each other or, or amongst themselves. And uh, mostly because of, I think, a lack of understanding of the mathematical basis of these measures. And that's where my, my background has let me, I think, find some new ways of doing that that are more, more logically consistent. And you could show that these measures are giving bad information. And that's a, a big part of my work over the last 10 years is, has been to try to change the way biologists quantify diversity and similarity between communities, and also phylogenetic diversity, and also even uh, genetic diversity, all those shared mathematical conceptions, which I'm trying to clear up along with my associates.
0: Right, and I mean, that's it's a scalable issue. I mean, we care about diversity on a lot of different levels, and, and when it comes to diversity, I mean, it's a numbers game. We talk about biodiversity a lot a lot of people want to compare areas based on their biodiversity numbers. So understanding diversity, like you said, it has a lot of conservation implications because it can mean a lot of different things on a lot of different levels across the board. And to think about that in the context of a place like Ecuador, which is huge biodiversity numbers, I mean, getting those ideas right, um, like you said, can can have serious implications for the way we approach conservation, the way we think about uh, populations and and functioning numbers of individuals for even maintaining what we would consider a, a, a functioning population of organisms.
1: Yes, and, and it turns out that high diversity communities are the ones where the old errors, the errors in the, in the classical measures are most serious. So perhaps that's one reason why these problems didn't jump out at people in the old days, because most ecologists were from the temperate zone, but now that we're applying diversity measures to very and and genetic diversity measures to uh, much more diverse systems than we've had before, these errors are, are quite serious.
0: And so, in thinking about you know, you're down in Ecuador, you're you're looking at plant diversity, you're cataloging all these new species and, and finding different distributions, but also then kind of juxtaposing that against what's happening, the loss of tropical forests and, and forests and habitats in general. I mean, it's not just isolated to forests or the tropics, it's everywhere. But, you know, when did you really start to reconcile these ideas with, with plants at the center of the focus, with trying to start something like Ecominga uh, to actually do something about it? Like, where did that sort of connection come together into to something real?
1: Well, the, the connection happened, the the impetus was new species of orchids, several new species, especially of uh, pleurothalite orchids, Lepanthes, and uh, Scaphocephalum, and and things like that, and mountains that no one really paid attention to before. So so this indicated to me that there was something special about these mountains, and and that this specialness probably extended to other organisms besides orchids, but I just couldn't recognize new species of trees, for example. I, I had the suspicion that the orchids weren't the only things unique and different, and no one really paid attention to the specialness of these places. So I tried to get I tried to get uh, the local government excited about that, and I tried to get the Ministerio de Ambiente, the environmental ministry, excited about that. Uh, so after going around in circles and trying to get other foundations to buy the land. No one wanted to put up the money. So I decided that I would have to try to start our, our own foundation and look for funds internationally and buy these places. And, the, and the, there, was a, there was a wonderful foundation that does the same thing for birds called the, the Hokotoko Foundation. And they were protected as where they're favored new species of birds. And so for me, that was a model that showed it could be done. And in fact, I had helped them do biological surveys of their reserves, so I knew them very well. I even invited some of their board members to be uh, and 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 staff to be part of our our foundation. and uh, that was that was the inspiration. I, I knew it could be done. if they could do it for birds, my friends and I would do it for plants. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's uh, super exciting and inspiring because I think a lot of people, you know, see these things going on and feel very much helpless, but you obviously saw that others were doing it and took the next step and and made it happen. And it's really interesting to me, uh, something I hold near and dear is our our orchids, really. And it's not to say that uh, orchids are the only plants out there, but like you said, you you notice certain things and then you start noticing patterns. and then you just scale up from there. you say, like, oh, okay if orchids are doing this, then a lot of other plants are doing this probably as well. And so you can kinda use orchids then as a guide for maybe identifying unique zones or, uh, you know, these isolated habitats where this species grows here and, and nowhere else in the world, right?
1: Exactly. In fact, that is practically the title of my last talk that I that I wrote uh, using orchids as indicators for conservation, to guide conservation. And, and they're great for that because, well, in Ecuador, at least, in, in cloud forest countries, in the Andes in particular, Peru, Ecuador, Venezuela, perhaps Bolivia, Colombia, orchids dominate the cloud forest flora in terms of number of species. And if you, especially if you look at the species of plants that are endemic, the plants that grow only in Ecuador and nowhere else in the world, those are the plants of conservation concern. Orchids dominate the endemic flora of Ecuador. And, and so it gives, orchids give you a language with a, a bigger vocabulary, a finer language than any other plant family can give you. And uh, not only that, they're excellent because they're flowering all the time. In other, uh, many other plants have seasonal flowers. Lepanthes are always flowering, almost always flowering. And there's, in Ecuador, there's more than 300 species of them. Wow. Which is a huge number. And in the valley where I live, there's 100 species of Lepanthes. That's really, it allows us to to discern very fine distinctions that less diverse genus would not. Would not allow, would not would not distinguish. So I, I really get excited about looking at the biodiversity patterns in the panthes and uh, and it's turned out to be an excellent guide for other families. Uh, we now after after all these years we've we've had specialists in our reserves, and almost any group you name, they have almost always discovered new species in our in our group in our reserves, uh, which were guided by the orchids and not just in plants we've got many new species of frogs as well huh. uh, coming up our reserves in fact probably in, in our in our valley i believe we my staff and, and visiting scientists have discovered uh, i think 12 new species of frogs and described wow. 12 new species of frogs uh, our reserve manager is a herpetologist juan pablo reyes in our guards they've got such an eye now for <laughs> they, they always accompany scientists on, the, on their on their investigations and, and they've learned from the scientists to recognize new species and they've got a, a very well-trained eye. They, they themselves have discovered several new species of frogs on their own. Man, just a few years ago, two years ago, one of our guards just casually walking down a trail discovered spectacular fairly large black frog with bright red. It's like the most beautiful frog. It turned out to be new to science. Wow. It turned out to be neurotoxic he ha- he held it in his arm for a long time to bring it down to civilization and uh, by the time he got down his arm was tingling and the colors are a warning <laughs> warning to predators apparently and he was getting poisoned <laughs> he was fine it was- and, and and we've uh, we've discovered these two new species of magnolias you would think magnolias would be well known but but uh, two fantastically beautiful interesting oh, discovered by uh, a Mexican Magnolia specialist and a local botanist. They, they described two new species, and I think we may have a third, possibly even a fourth. We're still working on that. Pretty astonishing to be discovering the biggest trees in the forest, in fact, yeah. in some places. And uh, do you know the, do you know the Sure. Oh, yeah. Sure you oh, do. yeah. I
0: love the melastomes.
1: Another really fantastic group that we've learned a lot about in the last few years, and there's a, a, gen- a genus of very large melastomes called uh, Mariania. And they have flowers two to three inches across sometimes. Very colorful, mass flowering so that the whole tree is in flower at once. And uh, myself and other botanists have discovered, I think, about five new species of these smellostomes in the Rio Zuniac Reserve. Wow. And these are really fancy trees. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful trees in the, in the neotropics. So very, very exciting time. Oh, we, we just had a group in the Rio Zuniac Reserve, in that same reserve, uh, who studies Sheffleras which uh-huh. are now, the New World Scheffleras are now called Schiadaphylla, Schiadaphyllum, something like that. But uh, they found five new species of uh, their ex-Schefflera. And a, 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 a Gesneriad specialist, he, uh, he's he been bringing student groups down here. And on one trip, one one short trip, he and his students discovered four new species of Gesneriads. <laughs> uh, every every few hundred meters, for new Gesneriad. Wow. <laughs> every, new, every couple hundred meters change. In elevation, vertical elevation. Yeah. So, so there, That's that's what drives a lot of the diversity here is the change as you move up and down a, a mountain. But the orchids have proven uh, good indicators, good guides for conservation of other plants.
0: Yeah, and that is truly the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And that just, I'm blown away. Um, and you know, it's not like you're going across all of Ecuador, right? These are just in the reserves that you own and operate and, and work with and, and good thing, right? Because who knows what else is still out there or what could have been lost. And that's what's amazing to me is we tend to think about our time period as most of the mysteries are gone, the discoveries have been made, but what you've just outlined here, it's not even just within the small miniature orchids, uh, the pleurothalids, it's, it's trees, it's, it's rainforest canopy trees. It's amazing what can happen in favorable places for plant growth.
1: Yeah, orchids have proven to be really interesting. And, and as you say, this, this, is, this is really the second age of discovery. We're, we're ri- botanists around the world. are riding a wave of, of new access to interesting forests and new tools such as DNA to uh, better identify distinctions between species. So since 1987, um, a thousand species of orchids are found, found in Ecuador. It's turning out to be true of other groups like Magnolias, and we keep finding new ones. <laughs> uh, and it's partly increased access. Yeah, so people are able to get places that they couldn't get to before, and that's a little bit frightening too, because we're riding the wave of deforestation. The botanists are getting there in time to discover the stuff, but then the next group to come by is the is the uh, the farmers who are going to clear the land. Uh... So, so it's a a, a two a, a double edged sword. This age of discovery, but it's an exciting time, and it's also a really important time for conservation.
0: Yeah. I mean, the hope is that with these new discoveries and with people getting excited that there are still natural wonders out there, that there's still so many unknowns. I mean, these are the tools and and really the fuel to get people riled up in favor of conservation. I mean, we're facing the sixth mass extinction on the planet. We're the cause of it. Things are changing radically fast, but we also kind of have to be the solution to a lot of this stuff. And And having, you know, foundations like yours and and people getting excited about new discoveries and new species and just biodiversity in general um, is really what's going to hopefully turn the tides or at least save some of what could potentially be lost over the next, you know, decade or so.
1: Yes. And and I I think that we scientists have to lead that. It's not enough to discover your stuff and go back to your labs. Mm. Many scientists now are realizing that really uh, it's up to us to... To try to explain to the public what we're discovering in a way that excites the public enough to to do something about it, and, and yeah, uh, the conservation resources are are scarce, and we need to try to guide those and uh, use use the resources scientifically.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and thinking about that, I mean, we've obviously outlined that orchids are incredible, and they're really useful, especially in what you're aiming to do with Ecominga in in identifying places to protect and. One of the things that blows my mind is like, it's not just across the board, all orchids. I mean, even within groups, like we mentioned the Pleurothallids, the genus Lepanthes is a special one to me. I mean, I can't think of more beauty and, and complexity packed into such a miniature size than these tiny plants. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about elevation and stuff, but you know, here's the tropics, Ecuador, you've got these cloud forests. They're very favorable for plant growth. I mean, what what is driving these radiations or at least as you understand it, to make it so that even in just within one group of orchids, one genus, you can have so many different species that are, have been discovered and are currently being discovered?
1: Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But before we talk about that, uh, what you said about the pantheas physically is, is, so, is so true. They are such amazing, beautiful plants. Usually the flowers are on the underside of the leaf. Harry Zelenko, who always used to say that if Lepanthes were the sizes of Cattleyas, nobody would ever look at (laughs) (laughs) Cattleyas. And I think he's right. I love that. What drives their uh, diversity is somewhat mysterious. Uh, Could be competition for pollinators. Sure. Minor variations tend to attract pollinators that that are different. Uh, In my experience, they are very, very specialized plants, specialized in in particular microclimates. Mm. I think that in well in my area, the seeds have to be going from one mountain to the next by the wind. And yet many of them are endemic to one or another of these mountains, can't be by dis- because they're limited by dispersal. Dispersal limitation is the standard explanation for endemism, right. Uh, That's right. You know the things on each island. Evolve in their own way because it's so hard to get to get from the mainland to the islands And then it's so hard to get from one island to another that there's time for reproduction reproductive isolation to develop Uh, Well, there's a physical barrier and eventually there will be genetic barriers if this lasts long enough but Orchids aren't limited by orchids have the best dispersing seeds of any uh, flowering plant And, (laughs) and yet they have the highest endemism rate of any flowering plant so it is really peculiar. And the, in the Galapagos, there's almost no endemic orchids. Huh. Uh, the 15 species of orchids, uh, I think 12 of them are shared with the mainland. Wow. And that's over 800 kilometers of open ocean. That means there's gene flow over 800 <laughs> kilometers of open ocean. And yet, my mountains that are 10 kilometers apart, they can almost hit, hit each other. You can almost, well, you can fly a drone from one to the other. <laughs> <laughs> They have all these all these endemic species. What's going on? And I guess even worse with the tigias. My, this is a the tigia evolutionary radiation is one of the most astonishing things I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, this is the genus tigia only had only had about six species in the world. They were all Neotropical, Colombia and Ecuador, but just six. And in my mountains around my house, uh, my students and i have discovered about 30 new species wow on the tops of the mountains and and it's a local radiation they're, they aren't very closely related to the previously known six species uh, huh. they're magically quite distinct they're creeping orchids that cro- creep through the moss with widely sp- leaves on a uh, leaves widely spaced on a slender rhizome they're a little like poroglossum edwardia if you know that one.
0: Oh, yeah yeah vaguely familiar with it
1: it's, uh, long, rapant uh, plants with isolated, single leaves appearing on the rhizome. And they're terrestrial, or well, they grow in moss, but in low, in low parts, either on the floor, forest floor or or in the low trunks of trees. And there's no species in common between the north side of the Rio Pastasa and the south side of the Rio Pastasa. The Rio Pastasa is what divides my valley. Okay. The mountains are about maybe at most 20 kilometers apart, Jeez. and yet they don't share a single species between the north and the south side. And what could possibly cause that? I have no idea. We, <laughs> uh, my, my colleagues at the, in the University of Florida, Gainesville, uh, the late Mark Witten and uh, Lorraine Andara, Kurt Newbig, and some others have uh, gotten the phylogeny mm. of, of these latigias and they've, they've calibrated it. According to time, and it turns out that this radiation happened locally in the last two and a half million years. Whoa! And and we can see by looking at the structure of the of the phylogenetic tree that there have been occasionally crossing overs of the Rio Pastasa in the ancient in the geological past. And when a species crosses over, it evolves into. Either one or several new species on the on the wrong side of the river, and leaves the ancestral species behind. And, and <laughs> so we know something about how the radiation actually developed through time, but we don't know why, and it's very strange. Uh, a student of Ken Cameron from the University of Madison, Kelsey Huizman, is is in those mountains right now studying the mycorrhiza of these tegias Hope, Hopefully, maybe we'll get some insights into their distribution by looking at the mycorrhizae.
0: Juan
1: huh. Pablo Suarez and I and some others did did a, a study of the roots, thinking maybe the thing that was keeping them from growing on, on the wrong sides of the Rio Pastasa was maybe some specialization in the root mycorrhizae. So we looked at the DNA of the mycorrhizal fungi in the roots of the tigeus, and they turned out to be pantropical mycorrhizae, not, not special. <laughs> So shut that theory down. So I, I don't know what's going on there. It's really strange.
0: But a beautiful mystery nonetheless. And I mean, I'm, you must spend many hours and many days just walking through thinking about this and, and just still having like that childlike sense of wonder. I mean, to to just be immersed in it must be incredible. And, and one of the amazing things to me is, you know, looking at your website and seeing a lot of the pictures of these different Tegia species. I mean, it's not like they were a bunch of cryptic uh, hard to tell apart species. I mean, these are distinct floral oh, yeah. morphologies, floral colors, and I'm guessing you know everything in between is is very fine tuned uh, to the point where, like, of course, you're looking at these, going like, yeah, this is all different, but what the heck is going on here?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's one. Of, it, I think it's the most exciting plant radiation I've ever on such a small scale, on such a such a localized plant radiation. I don't think there's many things like this, uh, in, at least in Ecuador or in South America, there's not many situations as extreme as this. Uh, with, We have on one mountain, uh, which is now a, a mountain that we actually own, we have 16 species of tigia growing together and one all new, uh, all recently described or undescribed, and all growing together, intertwined with each other. Hmm. And they're, they're the commonest things in the forest. Jeez. You can't walk without stepping on it. And, and no one had ever been up there. That, that's the neat thing, to be in it. The world is still yeah. so unexplored. In spite of everything, the technology and everything, these kinds of discoveries are still possible, which is really, I can't imagine that's going to last much longer. But sure. but, uh, but it's an exciting time, and, and and in my case, pure chance that led me to it. Uh, no, 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 no careful thought or anything. But, <laughs>
0: But you know what? Those are some of the most beautiful stories uh, of discovery, of of wonder, and of passion, right? Is just the serendipity you get drawn in, and suddenly this whole world is unlocked to you. And and what's incredible is 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 throughout this conversation is is just how little area, you know, actual land area we're talking about here. I mean, yes, mountains are topographically complex, but like you said, you could fly a drone from one peak to another, and this is where so much of this diversity is encapsulated. I mean talk about microhabitats and topographic complexity it's like it's just oh and uh, yeah uh, i'm blown away by everything you're telling me
1: here yeah that's the thing this is such a it's a beautiful interaction between the mountains and and the winds coming off the amazon and uh, it sets up uh, uh areas of constant mist and and, and different amounts of mist at different in in each successive range of mountains as you go inward as you go Westward from the Amazon Basin, each of those gets slightly drier, imperceptibly drier. But the orchids can see that mm. that small difference, and uh, it's really a very complicated thing. And I spend a lot of time looking at clouds, watching wind patterns, and seeing where the clouds collect and where, where the mist collects on the tops of which mountains. And those are the those are the mountains I I try to go after.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a fun way to do scouting trips. Um, and in thinking about high elevation, cool cloud forest orchids, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the genus Dracula, my, my favorite little Mazdavelia cousins.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, because we have a reserve called the Dracula Reserve. Woo-hoo! It's in the northwest of Ecuador. It's not near the others, not near Banos. Uh, it was set up at the request of the University of Basel Botanical Gardens in Switzerland, uh, Heinz Schneider in particular. Their botanical garden had a had a focus on Dracula orchids, and they wanted to do something for conservation of the Draculas in situ, and so they asked us to help to set up a, a reserve for Dracula orchids. And with the help of Ecuadorian botanists like uh, especially Luis Paquero, we did with the with the Draculas the same thing that I had done with the Lepanthes: mapped out the Dracula distributions and looked for like. Units of hotspots and distinctions between forests, and began to try to conserve the whole diversity of that northwestern quadrant. Buying representative forests of each of the Dracula habitat types that we had identified, and uh, that's been quite exciting. We have almost a thousand hectares now. A thousand hectares, about 200, two hundred, two uh, thousand, four hundred acres. And uh, we've been helped tremendously by the Orchid Conservation Alliance in, in San Diego, California, and the uh, Rainforest Trust, a big U.S. conservation foundation, who uh, matches the donations from the Orchid Conservation Alliance and from uh, the University of Basel. So we're uh, and we're buying new land every every year. There, we're growing rapidly, always looking for funds. <laughs> And the Dracula's, just like the Lepanthes, they're excellent indicators of special habitats. And it's all, well, that area also happens to have, not surprisingly, a lot of endemic Lepanthes as well. Huh. And uh, also, plenty of new species of almost any other group that you look at. Jeez. <laughs> Great. Oh, so many new frogs there. Very exciting place.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you ever feel overwhelmed? I mean, even as someone who's familiar with these genera and and at least has been around and hiked enough to kind of know, do you ever just get into spots and go like, oh boy, we are going to find some new stuff here. Like it's just a matter of reaching out and grabbing kind of thing.
1: Well, you know, every place I go, I always think that otherwise I wouldn't go there, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I'm often wrong. And it turns out it's not it's not easy to find new species. I, I make it sound easy, but it's not. it's it's really uh, hope springs eternal, and and certainly there's always a chance. But you do it's actually a fair bit of work to find areas that are like that. But there are areas like that. and once you're once you're in them, you know, oh well, gosh, it's very exciting., yeah. but but a lot of areas are not like that too. And in fact, if you I, I sort of did a random, an assessment of my of the Rio Pastaza Valley breaking the valley into quadrants of one kilometer and asking, well, if you picked a random kilometer and you bought that, how likely would you be to protect the, some of the endemic species in that valley? And it turned out the probability was very low. Hmm. that if you, if you picked a random quadrant, you're almost certainly going to miss the end, most of the endemic species. The endemic species are in particular areas, small areas, particular habitats they're not everywhere
0: so is that kind of what you do when you start looking at like you said you're you're watching where the mist is going and how long the clouds are sticking around each day i mean is that kind of where the sense of it all the gestalt of of uh uniqueness i guess comes into play or is just having a feeling for certain targeted spots then instead of just this random swath of protection
1: yeah yeah our protection isn't random at all it's very directed at these hot spots where I found the the lots of Lepanthes or And uh, most of those spots in our valley are not like that.
0: Right. So that's super special and, and and again amazing that this effort is being put forward. But in thinking about the big picture with habitat loss and climate change and just resilience against human the onslaught of human advancement, I mean, a lot of this has to come back down to some level of connectivity, right? This isn't like, you know, just grabbing a spot here, just grabbing a spot there. The, the idea would be then to sort of incorporate this into a larger protection of perhaps some buffers, some multiple use areas, but then core areas of protected habitat that will not be logged, will not be farmed to death.
1: Right. And we are very sensitive to connectivity, especially in the light of climate change. It's important to have connectivity up and down mountains so that things can move up over time or down if they in some cases mm-hmm. in fact the 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 rio pastaza valley the scientific predictions are that it might it might get colder and wetter than the past global warming is not uniform and right different things happen in different places but connectivity is important whichever way it goes if you, have, you want a connected ridge lines that allow things to move up or down as the case may be and uh we've We've made a special effort in, in the Baños area to, uh, I mentioned that we have the, the Rio Pastaza going down the center of the valley. And uh, there's a large national park called the Yanganates National Park protecting the, the highest areas north of the Rio Pastaza. And there's another large national park protecting the high areas of south of the Rio Pastaza called the Sangay National Park. And uh, what we have done is extended the protection of those two national parks by buying land, extending the protection downward to the lower elevations and connecting them across the Rio Pastaza so that we now have a corridor, we built a, a protected corridor between those two large national parks. And while that may not be all that important for plants, it is quite important for large mammals and birds and things like that to have that kind of connectivity.
0: Sure, I mean, it has to be holistic on on some level. I mean, it's okay to have plants as the focus and be your true passion. but again, we're we're in this for the ecosystem, right? It's every right. component right.
1: and the uh, the plants are by no means independent of the mammals and birds, obviously. right the Forest trees are dispersed by large mammals. and if you if you mess with the mammals, you're messing with the long-term future of the forest.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're already seeing that in places like Southeast Asia where, where megafauna have been removed. And, and
1: yeah, everything pays for it. Right. And uh, yeah, so if you really want to protect the composition, not just having a forest there, but having a natural functioning forest uh, that's regenerating itself, you pretty much better save all the parts of that ecosystem. <laughs>
0: Good points, but fantastic. I mean, it is so good to hear these success stories of corridors and connectivity, and especially in the context of, like you said, climate change and and letting species and, and nature take its course. But just to be there builds resiliency. But in thinking about the flip side of this, I mean, you're working in Ecuador, there's governmental interest, there's local interest. I mean, A... How has the reception been to this? And B, what is the involvement of the local community and just local people in general? Do they get involved? Are they excited about the work that's being done?
1: Yeah, yeah, they are. Baños, where we do most of our work, is is a special community. It's uh, It lives on ecotourism and it has a large influx of foreigners visiting constantly. So they understand the importance of the ecology. And in fact, the, the local governments themselves, Baños and some of the neighboring towns, declared the area that we made into a corridor, they declared that a, a corridor, a biological corridor between the national parks before Ecominga even existed. Wow. Uh, but they didn't do anything about it. Hmm. it. It's just a, law, a, paper, a paper declaration. You no know, laws changed restricting the landowner's uh, ability to cut the forest or anything like that. But the will was there, the recognition that was there. Not enough will, in my opinion, to, to actually chain, do anything, but uh, the intention was there. And the local people around our reserves are slowly, after initially being a, a bit suspicious of what we were doing, <laughs> why would, would these people want to buy these forests? Are they are they going to try to sell us the water? Some of them thought we were going to charge them for oxygen, if you can believe that. Jeez. But... Over the years, one thing that has changed—or not changed, but accelerated our, our acceptance by by the local communities—is that we've been getting, we've been encouraging students to come to our reserves to do studies. And when when they come to the reserves, we often ask them to stay in the houses of the community members and pay the community members directly for room and board and uh, use the community members' house as a as a base. So all of a sudden now, each family in these communities is having guests in their house who uh, are paying them, for one thing, and second, mm. coming back every day with their phones full of fantastic photos and excited and showing the family, look, look at what I saw today. Yeah, <laughs> look at this Andean cock on the rock. Look at this, look at this orchid. Uh, look at this frog. Look at this insect. And the people are starting to get excited about it. They didn't think of their forest as anything special. It's just something to get in the way of growing their crops. But when they see students from all over the world and scientists from all over the world coming there and staying in their houses and uh, getting to know them, the excitement is contagious. Yeah. And, uh, and they're starting to realize that their house, their, their forest isn't just an obstacle, it's actually really really interest. <laughs> and, uh, and the kids in particular in the community it's always the easiest way to get to the adults is through the kids, <laughs> and, and uh, if the kids like spectacled bears or mountain tapers, you can bet the father's not going to go out and shoot one. <laughs> so, so, we've 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 made spectacled bear and taper coloring books and stuff like wow. that. It's and and, uh, and it's 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 nice. It's working. I mean,
0: that's really great to hear. You, you love to hear involvement with the community. You want to get local people involved and, and just, you know, it's their land, right? It's their country. It's, there should be stewardship there. And and it's the same sentiments everywhere you go. If you don't know what's out there, if you don't have people, you know, showing you these things or or telling you like, oh, this cool thing is right up there, by the way. You know, you don't know what's there. And how can you care about something you don't know? And it's true at all scales. I mean, it's true from people sitting here not worrying about what's going on in other countries. But I see it all the time in our own backyard here in Illinois. I mean, this is an area that uh, everyone kind of breezes over as kind of being a flyover state. But you start to get to understand the plant diversity and suddenly you're like, oh, whoa, that lives here, that grows here. I hear that all the time from people that just don't simply don't realize
1: it. Yes, yes. I'm in Wisconsin. Oh, perfect! Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, north of you, and uh, and it's the fringed gentian season right now. Yeah, man, that's uh, so. It's such a neat flower. Very few people even know it exists, and so of course they're not going to care about it. They're not going to care if uh, prairies disappear and fens get drained, and it's, it's the same all over the world. Yeah, yeah. You have to you have to know the things if you in order to care for them, and uh, and it's a little bit unfortunate. I worry about kids growing up nowadays they don't seem to get out much and they don't seem to they actually seem they seem to be so controlled and scheduled that they they really don't go out into nature to explore and i I fear what will happen when push comes to shove and and they're asked to make sacrifices to protect nature they they may think they like nature because they watch tv about nature or they see nature on tv and if you ask them they probably would say that oh yeah i like nature but they don't really know nature except through tv and uh, and it gets harder to find good nature as time goes on in the United States. Uh, yeah. Our ecosystems are so altered. How old are you? I'm 32. You probably have never seen a deciduous forest that didn't have earthworms in it.
0: Oh, yeah, no, no. I have no idea what that must be like.
1: And and the earthworms have completely transformed the spring wildflowers. And when I was growing up, the ecosystems that I used to see around my house, and, and orchids, there were lots of wild orchids when I was growing up. Very difficult to see those things now. Uh, and major, major transformation of the ecosystem. The the, the deer population has oh, yeah. altered the this wildflower population tremendously, and uh, the, the earthworms have removed the duff layer. It's far less interesting now than it used to be. The birds are different. There's hardly any warblers, ducks. So many things have changed since when I was growing up uh, in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And uh, I don't know if I would be so interested now in nature as I if I was a young person now exploring the world, uh, the United States anyway, uh, the eastern United States anyway. uh, It's such a much less interesting place than it used to be. And uh, that's hard to hard to turn around.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what I fight to do every day or every week with this podcast and every day with posts is just tell people there's still stuff left. There's still reasons to enjoy your backyard. We just have to work to start putting some of these pieces back together, at least. But in thinking about actions, obviously, this is the right kind of podcast for you to be talking about your work. Um, and if anyone listening is fired up and wants to do something to help Fundacion Ecominga out and, and give a part of themselves or money or something, you know, what do you recommend that could help your mission go the next mile? You know, how can we help Ecominga?
1: Well, thank you for asking that. And uh, our campaigns for buying land are, are ongoing. Hmm. The Rainforest Trust, the Orchid Conservation Alliance. The Orchid Conservation Alliance is an excellent receptor for, for financial aid, if you can give it to us. They are not just funding us, they're funding many worthwhile projects around the world. Uh, you can choose us if you want and, and mention that in your donation, but you don't have to. Anything you contribute to them will go to some well-chosen strategic project to protect plants, whether it's ours or, or, or some other project around the world. And our, our particular need is uh, operating funds. We, we can get people excited about buying land, uh, but we also need operating funds to keep the foundation going. And we're actually, we're in a crunch right now. So any donation, unrestricted donation for operating funds would be really, really helpful.
0: How do people do that if they want to give the unrestricted funds for operation? How do you recommend, like, what's a specific way to make sure that happens?
1: Send it to the Orchid Conservation Alliance with that phrase. Uh, this is for Ecomingo without restrictions. Awesome. Then we can use it for what we what we need it for. Sometimes we've had to, for example, buy land that wasn't part of any funded project. It was just really important to buy it right then. It came up fast and, and was critical. So we took money out of operating funds to pay for that. and We have to recover that quickly. Uh, things like that. So, yeah, that would be really wonderful if anyone, any listeners would would do that and we we uh recognize our biggest donors by naming species after them oh well 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 so we've named many different orchids and frogs after people help us so, so, there is that incentive. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's fantastic. That's a nice little treat uh, to a little feather in the cap, so to speak. But Lou, thank you so much. I will be sure to put up links to all of these in the notes for this episode so that people can get directly there, find everything they need to. But uh, thank you for blowing our minds about this place and and thank you for all of the extremely important work your foundation is doing. I mean, it it is so uplifting. I was watching videos today. Uh, and it, it, it like gets me all misty and stuff. I mean, no pun intended with cloud Forest, but you're doing such incredible and important work. And I can't thank you enough for the efforts.
1: Well, thank you very much, Matt, for having me on the program. I enjoyed this. Good. Thank
0: I'm you. glad. Yeah. Happy to have you back on anytime. So do stay in touch.
1: Okay. Bye, man.
0: All right. Cheers. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Lou once again, go check out Ecominga and consider supporting their cause, but also helping them prevent gold mining from destroying some of the most biodiverse habitats on our planet. I thank Lou for taking the time to talk to me back in 2019. And of course, I thank you all for listening. Once again, go check out the show notes over at indefensibleplantscom podcast to figure out how you can support Ecominga's mission. Speaking of support, I have a big shout out to the latest producers on this podcast, Daniel, Margaret, and Kenned. All of them pitched in at the producer credit level, so they are doing everything in their power to help keep this show up and running. If you want to be like them or check out some of the great kickbacks we have, just go over to patreon.com slash The contribution of my patrons each and every month makes a difference. I couldn't be doing this show without them, so thank you to everyone that supports the show. You can also support InDefense Plants by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. And all of those links are in the show notes at indefenseofplants.com podcast as well. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.